Welcome to Liberté, Galité, Fraternité and all that, a podcast about current affairs, foreign policy, politics and governments behaving badly. Episode 8, Cutting and Running from Afghanistan. Welcome back, everybody. It has been eight months since the last time I managed to put up an episode, right after Joe Biden's miraculous night uh, on Super Tuesday. It's, was not, it was not intended to be such a long hiatus. Work did play a factor, but among the other, another problem is Making a podcast takes a lot more time than putting up a blog. It takes time to clean up the audio, clean out the ums and the ahs and the pauses and the mistaken statements that inevitably come when you record. And that takes up a lot of time. So what I'm going to do going forward, it's going to be a much more informal podcast. You will hear some extraneous noises and I'm frankly, I'm not going to bother to delete them out. You might see my neighbor's Feet's making noise upstairs. You might hear the heating system making noise. Well, so that's what it is. Uh, I meant this to be more of a stream of consciousness type podcast, and that is where I'm going to try to go. It makes it much quicker for me to get some notes and get, say what I want to say, and then let the episodes stand or fall on its own merits. So it will not be particularly a super professionalized audio sequence, but at least episodes should be more frequent and heaven forbid should not be eight months till the next episode. There's a lot of stuff going to happen in the next two days in the United States, for example. So back to the title of the episode. Uh, When I first came up with this topic, Donald Trump had announced a peace treaty with the Taliban, which, of course, Donald Trump in his ever continuing quest to get a Nobel Prize, he would love to have got a Nobel Prize for this as he would for a bunch of other things. And on the face of it, I have some sympathy for what he's trying to do. About the only positive I can think of for Donald Trump in his disaster of a presidency that makes you almost yearn for the glory days of James Buchanan is the fact, braggart, blusterous buffoon that he is, I really think he does not want to get us into another war. He will do a lot of stupid things that will get you on the brink of it, but I think his one redeeming feature, if he has one, is that he really, really does not want to start a war. And he has boasted about it recently. So there is something to be said about that, and there's something to be said about that in the war in Afghanistan. Because this is now the longest war in U.S. history. There is no obvious exit point in sight. And... Part of the problem we are dealing with here is Afghanistan is an artificial nation. It's not exactly Yugoslavia in that it was not put together by a bunch of foreign powers uh, like or Iraq, but it's an accidental tribal nation. You never really had a country called Afghanistan until the 1750s and 1760s when Ahmad Shah Abdali in the aftermath of the assassination of Nadir Shah started and founded the Durrani Empire 
which included Afghanistan, what is now Balochistan, in pa the province in Pakistan, parts of India. And part of the reason is it's a big bunch of tribal groupings over there where the Pashtuns are the largest and most powerful of the groupings. And you have a bunch of other tribes who naturally do not want to be ruled by the Pashtuns. And this was fine in the age of empires, but what happened in the 19th century was Afghanistan was squeezed between the British Empire in India, the British Raj, and the Russian Empire, which was exp expanding east and south into what we call, call the Stans, and had conquered Bukhara. So Afghanistan was the plaything in the great game. And the British got involved in two wars in Afghanistan uh, and finally decided it was not worth the trouble and money to try to conquer this region. And frankly, they also suffered a few military defeats, uh, which were very, very embarrassing. Uh, if you've read Sherlock Holmes, Dr. Watson, he's, he returns from Afghanistan and that's actually the second Anglo-Afghan war. But in the aftermath of that war, uh, Afghanistan was basically ruled by brute force by a Pashtun emir uh, from, from called Abdul Rahman, who brutally, he's called the Iron Emir because he brutally kept this hodgepodge together by force. And this obviously came at the expense of tribes like the Hazara who were brutally suppressed with cannons. And so this works in, when you have a multi-ethnic patchwork quilt like this, you can f keep it together by force, or then you have to try to build some sort of democratic, de democratic federation together. And Afghanistan, for a variety of reasons, has never really managed to do this. The Pashtuns are the slight majority, if not the plurality. So they are never willing to accept a secondary place in, at the pecking table. And this showed up in, a previous election where the opposition candidate was supported by a lot of non-Pashtuns, so the Pashtuns would not accept him even though he was Pashtun. And it's the other problem you have now with the modern state of Afghanistan is it's a hodgepodge of Pashtuns, Kyrgyz, Turkmen, Uzbeks, Tajiks, some Baloch and some poor Hazara. And every single one of those of those ethnicities, including the Pashtuns, has a country next door that has more of them. There's a Kyrgyzstan, there's a Uzbekistan, there's a Tajikistan, there's a Turkmenistan. Pakistan, the Northwest Frontier Province is full of Pashtuns, which is a sore spot because modern Afghanistan has never accepted the Durand line that divides Afghanistan and Pakistan. So that's a big source of instability in the region as well. So basically it's a mess. And here's where it is some of George W. Bush's fault. Now, I don't want to blame him too much because eventually anything he did probably would have fallen apart. But we blew it in 2003, 2002, 2003. When we went into Afghanistan in 2002, people were sick of war. They've had 30 years of war after the proto-communist coup and the Russian invasion and then the Mujahideen turning on each other, and then the Taliban conquering almost 95% of the country, Afghanistan was exhausted. And everybody was at the table wanting some sort of peace deal. But then the Bush administration, as we all know, got distracted and moved on to Iraq. And they largely ignored Afghanistan. And they ignored bin Laden, which was the reason we went into Afghanistan in the first place. 
And so part of the problem there was we ignored one of the main factors of why there is still an Afghan war, namely the foreign policy of Pakistan. Pakistan's foreign policy over the last few decades has been predicated heavily on making sure that it doesn't have two hostile countries on either side. And as I said, Afghanistan has never really accepted that international border with Pakistan. Pakistan has a secessionist movement in Balochistan. And since independence, they have had hostile relationship with India. Add in the factor that the Taliban were Pakistani clients who were financed and put into power with Pakistani help. And guess what? The Taliban didn't accept the Durand line either. And this, as a result, Pakistan has had a very, very negative effect on the region. And again, they have their real politic reasons for this. But the US has never consistently put pressure on Pakistan to clear up its act. And a few times when things were done, they threw a tantrum and tried to cut off US military shipment by the land route to uh, Afghanistan. But we basically missed out on this. And what happened in intervening years is after the Taliban was pushed out, the after the Taliban was pushed out, they reconstituted themselves in in Quetta, Quetta, the Balochistan capital, uh, the so-called Quetta Shura. And then a bunch of tribal regions across the porous Pakistan-Afghanistan borders went back and forth. And so for the last years of the Bush presidency, you had this frustrating situation where you would have these groups coming in, attacking US troops, and then running across the border. And then because you cannot attack uh, Pakistan, you are sort of fighting with one hand behind your back. And it started towards the last years of Bush and then early years of the Obama, and then definitely under Obama, the US got fed up and started responding with drone attacks, often on Pakistani soil. And I have a lot of liberal friends who are offended by it and the morality of all of this. And yes, it is horrible. Uh, you, there is a lot of sympathy for civilians who have to suffer through these drone attacks. But I've never really heard a solution of what exactly is the US supposed to do here? You have people attacking US troops and then just running across the border, and the US is supposed to sit and take it? Now, the answer could be you could have had more open public pressure on the weak Pakistan government, which is basically a Chinese client at this point. And the Osama bin Laden raid really brought that home, where the Pakistani prime minister went running to China for support after the international humiliation. But this has been an ever-singing problem. Uh, ever-present problem. Uh, ever since Obama did his surge and you have uh, you had some gains. Now the other problem you have had is the, where we botched it in 2002-2003. We probably should have had more of a parliamentary-sized system. Instead we put an American-style presidential system which generally inherently is unstable everywhere uh, because you run into a problem of you get an the presidency can be very autocratic. You often have a president who cannot control parliament and lots of structural issues with presidential systems for the price of stability. Parliamentary systems are not perfect. Parliamentary systems have their own issues, particularly when you cannot form governments and instability. But at least in a hodgepodge like Afghanistan, you get different ethnic groups that get a say at the table. And Hamid Karzai, well-meaning he may have been, was incompetent, he was corrupt. And on his watch, Afghanistan sort of floundered, and gradually the Taliban made a comeback, so much so increasingly large parts of the Pashtun heartland are back in Talib effective Taliban control. 
And so the U.S. is basically stuck in this proxy war. It is not willing to commit the amount of troops necessary to reconquer uh, to Afghanistan. But it's sitting there bleeding. Now, the amount of troops there has dropped dramatically in the last few years. But the fear is this Afghan army we have been spending time training is largely useless and will not be able to function on its own. And if this sounds familiar, this is pretty much sort of the situation the U.S. was stuck with in Vietnam, where they could not trust the South Vietnamese troops to keep fighting without heavy U.S. military assistance. And again, now we are facing the same situation where the U.S., like Vietnam, is fed up and wants to get out. Now, our casualties, obviously, thankfully, have not been as high as Vietnam. So this is, in ways, a forgotten war. But it is there. But the problem, again, is like with Vietnam, what happens when the Afghan, I'm not saying if, but I'm saying when the Afghan government collapses. Are we really going to enjoy having a Taliban government back in power, which is going to possibly sit there and allow all sorts of groups to uh, congregate on its territory and set aside the sheer human rights costs of civilians stuck in a, under a regime like this. So it is in this light you have Donald Trump who wants to end this war and he signed a quote-unquote peace accords uh, with the Taliban a few months ago. And again it is so hard to not compare this to Vietnam because it sounds so much like the Paris Peace Accord where the US got out of Vietnam and South Vietnam was basically kept out of the negotiations because North Vietnam refused to negotiate with them and guess what? The Taliban is refusing to negotiate with the main Afghan government. So here goes the U.S. and uh, and signs a deal with the Taliban. And there were obviously at the time there were primary areas of concern. The Taliban committed not to support terrorists, but some like the Haqqani network were embedded in the Taliban. The Afghan government and the Taliban were supposed to have talks to discuss power and. Again, you have 45% of the country that's non-Pashtun. They despise the Taliban. You have serious questions about women's rights. And the Afghan government was really not part of this negotiation. And again, the big elephant in the room that I've harbored on already is the role of the Pakistani intelligence services. They propped up the Taliban. Once the US leaves, they were in mischief mode. Pakistan made sure that the Indian government, which is a supporter of the Afghan government, was not involved because India cannot have a role in Afghanistan if Pakistan has anything to do with it. And then you had other delightful little parts of the deal where the US was, was going to put pressure on the Afghan government to release 5,000 Taliban fighters as a gesture of peace. Now remember, a few years ago, the Obama administration released five old decrepit old men in exchange for one US hostage. And the Republican Party collectively lost its shit. Collectively, the Republican Party was outraged. How dare you go down to terrorism? And these were five old men who had been basically locked up for a decade with limited power. Who knows what they could have done? And here is Donald Trump asking our Afghan allies to release 5,000 fighters. And not a single peep from the same Republicans worried about security, worried about terrorism. The hypocrisy is, is mind-boggling. And... There were also talks back then that intelligence networks believed that the Taliban, shockingly, was not going to keep up its end of the deal. So it was very clear.
clear it's an attempt to cut and run. The Pentagon, of course, is appalled at this. Uh, and there is some justice to Trump's comments that there are generals who will not want to give up their goodies and their hardware. But I have serious questions as to what Trump has, how much Trump has thought his plans through. Because once we withdraw, it is very likely that the Afghan government is going to go the way of the South Vietnamese government and collapse. They have failed to generate popular enthusiasm. Their army is corrupt and incompetent. And you have the Pakistani establishment backing the Taliban, which also means that Afghanistan is going to be the site of another proxy war as the non-Pashtun minority will be funded by other countries, probably India, to fight and prevent the Taliban from fully taking over the country. And in recent days, we have seen the Taliban endorse Donald Trump for president. Gee, I wonder why they're getting a gift. Again, I'm being harsh on Trump, and I'm, to be fair to him, there are no great solutions here. There is, the ideal solution is if Afghanistan, which has never really managed to do this, somehow manages to put itself together and become a functioning state. But that has not happened. There's no reason to think it will happen anytime soon. And so we are stuck in this long, never-ending war. So it is understandable why Trump and even some Democratic members of Congress want us to start withdrawing our troops. But what is the end game here? What happens next? And that is a question that should always be asked. What are the contingency plans when the Taliban takes over? It is pretty clear at this point, nobody gives a damn about the poor women, children, and civilians of Afghanistan. We abandoned them in 1991, we will abandon them again. And when they come out as refugees, we will not take them in. So spare a thought for the poor Afghans, because it's very likely there's gonna be pressure even on a Biden administration to finally cut our losses. And as long as you have a Pakistani establishment and now a Russian establishment, which is committed to opposing anything the U.S. does. Nobody's really going to care about Afghanistan. Nobody's really going to care about the stability of the region. And Afghanistan will continue to be a victim of the new great game. Well, that's it for now. I won't promise the title of the next episode because I'm hoping it won't take as long. And hopefully it will not be eight months like last time. So I will see you soon.